also just so many survivors who hold their stories and their bodies for their entire lives. And they are worthy of getting access to support to help them move, to move through. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast designed to explore the intersection between mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Zabi Yamasaki. Zabi is the program director of trauma-informed yoga programs at UCLA, and she's also created a trauma-informed yoga program that's being used at over 20 college campuses in the U.S., including Stanford, USC, and Johns Hopkins. Her work has been featured on CNN, NBC News, and in the Huffington Post. And she's also author of the forthcoming book from Norton, Teaching Trauma-Informed Yoga to Survivors of Sexual Assault, a supportive guide for practitioners. I first met Zabi in 2018, and I've been a fan of her work ever since. Her trauma-informed teaching has a ton of overlap with trauma-sensitive mindfulness, and she brings years of really hard-won experience to any conversation about trauma and contemplative practice. She talks openly about the way her own experiences of trauma have shaped and informed her work, especially where she's found healing um, in her own path. Finally, just to mention, we recorded this conversation before the coronavirus had really landed. Um, so that's not a part of our dialogue here. And I think that this conversation has a lot of relevance to what trauma-informed teaching will be looking like going forward. So I hope that you enjoy the conversation. And here is Zabi Yamasaki. I'm here with Zabi Yamasaki. Zabi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks, David, for having me. It's so great to connect with all of you. Hmm. I was looking this morning before the podcast about like how far back do we go? And I was noticing, I went back to the first email that we had and it was two years ago was, or almost two years ago um, in May <laughs> 2018. And you know, you'd seen my book, you reached out and then I had the chance to go down to UCLA to be with you. We co-led something. So, you know, we have we have some history. And then I also realized there's there's parts of your story that that I don't know about. And then there'll be a number of listeners who don't know. So I'm wondering if we could just start with um, just how did how did you get to be where you are around your work around trauma-informed yoga? And mm. you know, what would you like us to know? Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening in. And absolutely, David, I still remember when I reached out to you after I read Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness and you know, it was one of the first books that I read within the scope of our field that I felt like just touched upon so many topics around social context and just things that I had been really craving to read about in trauma and yoga and mindfulness books. And so that was just the beginning of this really special friendship and relationship. And um, I'm just so grateful to be on the podcast. Yeah. Me too. I remember that. That was our first connection around thinking about trauma in a particular way. And so, yeah, we've just been talking since then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, for those who don't know me or this is the first time you're really getting a scope of what I do, um, I am the founder of an organization called Transcending Sexual Trauma Through Yoga, which is an organization with a very simple mission. 
empowering survivors to heal through the practice of trauma-informed yoga. I also work as the program director of trauma-informed programs at UCLA, where I facilitate a number of alternative healing and resilience-based programs, including the eight-week trauma-informed yoga series for survivors of sexual assault across each of the UC campuses. And in the scope of my consulting work, I I work for about 25 different college campuses and trauma agencies and helping them infuse trauma-informed yoga into the scope of their work. Did you say 25, by the way? Yes. Yes. You're busy. Like that's a a lot. I mean, I'd love to dig into that about, um, that's amazing, 25 different campuses. So anyway, I just want to make sure I got that right. Yeah, I know. Sometimes when, I, when I'm when i in the day-to-day and I recognize how many universities I'm supporting, I'm just sort of that's like, amazing. what? How did this happen? And how did right. I get here? Yeah. And I, I guess I would say that that's, that's sort of the power of believing in our stories and believing in our voice. I mean, I never imagined in a million years that this curriculum would be implemented on such a wide scale mm-hmm. really just started as a small seed that I planted um, as a survivor of sexual violence myself and um, trauma of multiple kinds in my life. Um, I was just really craving a program that spoke to the language of the body and um, something that was culturally affirming, something that was soulful. I mean, for a lot of folks of color who are trying to find or access healing modalities, there are so many barriers around seeking mental health services, whether that be around the cultural barriers or the stigma that's associated with seeking talk therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I you know, I created this eight-week trauma-informed yoga series that was really tailored to the unique and nuanced needs of survivors of sexual assault. Um, And it's just started as this one program, and then survivors were sharing with other survivors. And then one university would share their experience in working with me with another university. And it was was such an organic way um, in terms of the outreach. I mean, there was not a lot that I did around um, marketing the program or, yeah. or really yeah. anything at all. It was just sort of like, oh, like okay. word of mouth. yes, word of mouth. And, um, and I, I really find that when survivors are building programs for survivors, that's where um, some of the most powerful and meaningful work can happen. Yes. Yes. Because it really allows folks to feel seen and to feel held and, and to really feel like these programs are made for them. Can you, t- that's great. Can you talk a little bit about uh, when you said it's tailored? I mean, we'll talk more about trauma informed yoga generally, but when you say that you were tailoring it, I mean, specifically, I hear you talking also about identity and then for, for sexual assault survivors, what does that, what does that mean? How, what are some different um, tailorings that, that you've done in the program? Oh, absolutely. Um, I honestly, Dee, there's so much I would say around my work. I really feel like I help to ground people in their own worthiness. Yes. And for a lot of survivors who have lost a lot of power and control over their body, um, who haven't had access to agency or to choices, or have been met with resistance around seeking support or feeling like people do not believe them. 
mm-hmm. um, or who are working through barriers in the system. I mean, I think about all of the all of the resources that are out there for survivors around um, talk therapy or medical support or reporting. And you think about how jarring it is for a survivor to move through a system like that. That's not mm-hmm. for them to thrive. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, how can we continue to send survivors through these various systems where they're met with so much resistance and so many barriers without giving them the tools to balance their own nervous system? Mm, yep. You yep. know, to help them feel like they can access their and engage their parasympathetic nervous system to to yeah. really feel safety and stability in their bodies before they go and engage with these other various processes, if that's what they choose, if they feel yeah. empowered to seek those other resources. So um, kind of a long-winded way of saying it's so important to have a, an overall scope of the survivor experience because then you're able to infuse themes that might speak to those um, various issues that they might be experiencing. So within the scope of my curriculum, we talk about embodied boundaries, Mm -hmm. talk about assertiveness, we talk about safety, we talk about inner strength. And, you know, each class is about 90 minutes. And the first 30 minutes is typically spent on some sort of theme or activity. It might be a journaling exercise. It might be a group discussion. It might be sort of a grounding meditation or just something that would tie to our theme for that day. Yeah. Um, and then the, the next 60 minutes is the trauma-informed yoga practice where I'm infusing different affirmations or different quotes, or we might do sort of a physical posture that aligns with the theme around assertiveness or around setting boundaries. So it might be, you know, a warrior two or a plank pose or a heart opening meditation, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, what theme we're focusing on that day. Yeah. And the curriculum is eight weeks and each week really builds upon the next, both in terms of the content and the theme, as well as sort of the postures that I'm integrating. Um, and, and honestly, with trauma-informed, it's, it's really less about a specific posture and more about the language that I'm using to guide students through that process. Yeah, this is where the work that I had been doing at the time around trauma-sensitive mindfulness was really around uh, preventing harm. What are the best practices to have people, you know, feel as safe as possible or regulated as possible inside of inside of work? Kind of setting up some guardrails. And then when I learned about your program, realizing that you were not only having this foundational level around. Um, what the best practices were to take care of people in a class, like no, no unsolicited physical adjustments, for example, mm-hmm. but that then you were doing this whole program that w- what you were just speaking about a 90 minute class where you're actually doing some focused work. Um, I, it sounds like leveraging certain methodologies, certain traditions that we could talk about too, and what that means around yoga towards, as you're saying, like safety boundaries, inner strength. And I got so excited to, to hear that you've been, really structuring this in such a purposeful yes. way. Yes. I, you know, I, I find that some of the most powerful breakthroughs around healing 
happen in these classes. And, you know, so many survivors will start with the trauma-informed yoga program and move through this eight-week series and then feel empowered to seek additional resources in their recovery. Yeah, And, you know, getting to a place, I know for myself, when uh, I've been in therapy for years, but until I could really feel my body until I could really drop into my body and really be attuned to what it was communicating to me or really believe that that I was even worthy of listening to those messages, it was hard for me to engage with, with talk therapy in a way that I felt like I could have a resilient nervous system or that there was flow or that there was energy or that I could be more expressive in communicating hmm. what I was going through. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about any of those moments for you? Um, the, again, this bridge between that your experience in in yoga would have then allowed you to have more resource ground. I, I'm it's so moving to hear that, and wonder if you could share more about were there any kind of key moments for you that enabled you around whether it was worthiness or, and if not your experience, maybe of anyone else that's come through the program. Um, confidentially, of mm-hmm. course, but just to for people to start getting uh, kind of data points of how this can actually um, look when it comes to trauma-informed yoga. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different examples I can give. Um, I'll, I'll start with my own story and then I'll sure. kind of give a few examples. I know that, you know, for years when my trauma or my grief would it would send me into a state of hypo arousal where mm. I was just feeling frozen and numb. And to go into therapy like that, where I was totally zapped of my energy or the fatigue was so overwhelming, even to work with a therapist who could engage me in taking a few mindful breaths at my own pace to perhaps notice my feet on the ground. Um, to move through a few seated sun salutations together to kind of get the energy moving through my nervous system. Mm -hmm. The way that even just starting with a centering practice before I would engage with talk therapy, that that would even slightly elevate my mood, you know, and the way that we're bridging sort of embodiment with talk therapy. I think that there's so much that can be done there. Um, and there's another example of a survivor who I worked with where she would often run into her perpetrator on campus. Mm-hmm. And for many, in many instances, it would, you know, send her, she would oftentimes have a panic attack or she would, she would head back to her dorm and didn't feel like she could leave for days. And of course, not only was it having an incredible impact on, on her mental health, but it was, she wasn't being able, she wasn't able to access her academic environment in a way that she deserved. Yeah. And so, um, when I worked with her in the eight week trauma informed yoga program, she started to tell me the shift that was starting to happen that when she would either see him on campus or they would be in similar spaces that she could take a moment and maybe place her hand on her heart and a hand on her belly and just start to notice the rise and fall of her breath. 
that she could acknowledge that her anger was absolutely valid and that she deserved to take up space. Um, She would practice some of the affirmations that we did in the class. She would take a moment to notice her feet on the ground, and it would allow her to resource herself in those moments where sort of the physiological impact of the triggers were starting to arise in her body, that she could remember that she had this access to her innate capacity for resilience. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you know, the yoga practice or the tools, nothing was going to take away the pain that this person had caused her, but it was starting to lessen the grip that it was having on her heart and the way that she moved through the world mm. and what she believed she was entitled to and capable of. And, and really that, that post-traumatic growth piece, you know, of, of really reminding survivors that they can access that, that as difficult and messy and incredibly challenging that the healing process is that, that they're worthy of, of getting to that place at their own pace and on their own timeline. So pretty amazing. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks for sharing both your story and that example. I think that really is connecting a lot of dots and it reminds me of an experience that I had when we were teaching, actually uh, doing a a trauma informed uh, contemplative practice retreat in Southern California. And I remember a question that, that was asked of both of us about, well, what would happen if someone ended up having a challenging experience inside of a class that we were leading, how to handle that. And I noticed that this was in some ways still early on of my teaching. And I went down more the road of, well, you could try this and you could try this and that. Mm -hmm. And I remember then you said, well, let's also remember that it's okay and to be expected that people may get triggered inside of a class and that that's not actually a problem and that a big part of the work is actually reminding people that if and when they are out of their window or stirred to a degree that they feel dysregulated, they have tools. And I remember that was a moment where I, I, I took a breath <laughs> and mm-hmm. learned and it felt like a foundation inside of trauma-sensitive practice is a reminder that's not about just trying to tamp things down and stay comfortable, but actually to really empower people and empower survivors. And that story you just told about someone on campus that we could try to, you know, as best as we can take care of the external conditions, but there's also empowering moves that can be made internally that have people feel a sense of agency and choice with their bodies of their boundaries. And it's just reminding me of that. Yes, exactly. I I think to us practitioners, when we're trying to be really cognizant of being trauma-informed or being trauma-sensitive within the scope of contemplative practice, there's there's this also need to control everything. And I, I need to make sure I don't do harm. And I need to control all aspects of the external environment, as you beautifully said. And you know, we're, we're doing the very best we can and we're providing a scope of tools to help increase safety, but also empowering survivors to choose the ones that best work for them. Right, 
Right. And we can't control every, you know, emotional experience or every trigger that might arise within these spaces. But we can certainly do our very best to equip survivors with some really powerful tools. And, you know, in that example that I shared, I still stay very close in contact with that particular survivor and just the way that she's thriving now in her life and how much those tools have helped her even beyond, you know, in every aspect of her life. Right. That's awesome. That's great. What, you know, what you just said feels, um, in my experience inside of meditation and mindfulness communities, that there's something actually quite liberating about not just trying to be perfect all the time or this fear that someone's going to, you know, have a troublesome or dysregulating experience that it's okay. We're going to, we're going to do our best. We're going to make mistakes. I mean, so many of the people I meet, they say, you know, what's inspiring me to be doing trauma sensitive work is I want to do well by the people that I'm working with. But there is some, there's a knot that I know I've gotten tied in and I've seen other teachers get tied in sometimes of like, oh, I just want to do so well and not hurt anyone. And then that can create a certain immobility. And so I think there's a certain um, freedom or freeing up of energy that can happen of we do our best, leave people in choice and power and I'm wondering if that's, is that a dynamic? It sounds like it's similar you've seen inside of yoga communities around that freedom or have, have you experienced that or do you see that around? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's actually bringing up a conversation I had with one of the participants who was attending one of my in-person three-day trauma-informed teacher trainings. And, you know, I, I was, observing her. And I just noticed that she looked a little bit distressed when we were moving Mm -hmm. through um, the lecture. And at the break, I asked if I could check in with her just to see how she was doing. And, um, you know, she shared through tears that she she was just sort of like, I just don't want to do any harm, you know, like as I'm taking in all of this material and I'm really cognizant of the impact of trauma on the body and the brain. And she was, you know, she was a clinician as well as a yoga teacher. So she'd already had very robust training. And she's like, as I'm moving through this, I just, I'm so worried that I'm going to do more harm. And, you know, I asked her if I could give her a hug and we had this moment and it reminded me of this quote that I shared with her. And it's by Lisa Danilchuk, who does a lot of great work Mm -hmm. in, in yoga for trauma. And she says, we cannot prevent all experiences that activate a negative samskara or traumatic memory. Instead, we seek to create an embodied experience of safety. And when triggers arise, offer support through the tools that we have learned. And, you know, and what I continued to share with that woman in my training was that there is so much that we can do just through our supportive presence, just through the way that we hold space for folks in how we welcome them into the space and how we truly see them and honor their humanity. If you aren't able to do anything else, you know, I know people get really caught up in the checklist of things. And, you know, of course we go through some general considerations around creating safety for survivors of sexual assault in the context of yoga. But the most important thing that you can do is to be a supportive anchor for folks. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, in polyvagal theory, they talk about, you know, sort of this, this concept of neuroception and how we sort of scan our environment for experiences of safety. And, you know, when participants tell me that they walk into the space and, and immediately feel a sense of safety just because of the way that I might greet them or the way that I've set up the space. Um, or the way that we're kind of infusing elements into, you know, just our general setup for classes. I think that there's so much that can just happen from that initial sort of point of interaction and that safe attunement with another human being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, it's just a, a general reminder that you're enough exactly as you are, that if all you can give is your, your loving and supportive presence, then that's more than enough. Could you talk a little bit about that last part when you said that people are coming into a space and, you know, by virtue of having seen you teach, I do feel like you embody a certain degree of safety and a real dignifying of people's experience. And, you know, I think you and I are both in some ways uh, working in communities where we are we are training in that and trying to not just be cognitive and conceptual about best practices, but actually to become the work, like to really embody a a safety or trauma-sensitive practice. And you had listed a couple things about, for example, the way you set up the room, or uh, could you just, you know, could we dig in a little bit there of what would you say you're doing or what were the you know, to me, that's, that's hard one to, to be able to embody that. And for people that are saying, how can I be even more, uh, embodying that level of trauma sensitivity? What would you say, or what, what have you, what have you learned in terms of your practice? Oh, absolutely. There's so much to say here. Hmm. So what, as you were speaking, it, it also reminded me of, of something that a survivor shared with me. And she said, Never have I felt so safe without having to speak a single word about my assault. So this this survivor shared this quote with me, and she shared that with me after participating in an eight-week trauma-informed yoga series. And a big part of embodying the work is committing to your own your own practices around emotional balance and healing. And really, you know, I'm acutely aware that many of us come to this work with our own experiences of trauma. And Mm -hmm. it requires us to be extra gentle with ourselves, that we don't have to have it all figured out or be an expert, um, that we can be honest with ourselves when the work is really hard or really challenging or blending with our own experiences of trauma. And there are two inquiries that help me quite a bit in the scope of my work. One is your energy introduces you before you even speak. That's a quote by Maya Angelou. And it's it's a powerful reminder for me of, of what an honor it is to hold space for survivors um, and how integral me taking the steps to nourish myself or to feel embodied before I enter some of these spaces um, is so important, right? If yeah, I am yeah. sort of operating in a place of hyper arousal, or if I've just had a day and then I walk into a space and I'm about to lead a class for survivors, that that energy is going to be felt in the right, room. Right, right. And then the the other inquiries are: Are you observing or are you absorbing? So are you 
you observing mm. the the trauma around you or are you absorbing it? And are you mm-hmm. carrying or are you caring? And uh, carrying or caring. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so if you tend, if you're an empath like me, <laughs> which I imagine yeah. many of us are, no doubt. Um, if you carry and if you absorb um, that is impacting you at a really visceral level, um, at the level of your neurobiology. Um, it's impacting, you know, it can lead to things like vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue or burnout because you can start to take the experiences of other people and those can manifest as trauma symptoms. And so, um, you know, for me, a big part of being able to have a supportive presence and really think about the art of holding space in a way that feels safe and grounded and embodied is being mindful of my own practices. It just reminds me about the way that we're all in practice and that the more that we're, we're on our own edge with practice. I mean, I, yeah. I can hear you. I can hear it. And what you're saying, I can feel the part of me that goes, oh man, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard to, to be in my own window or, or even the combo of like you're saying you've with my Angelou's quote, which is so powerful, how to sometimes acknowledge to a group of people, you know, Hey, here's this is where it's at right now. And then other times to really lean into my own practice or for us to lean into our own practices to then enable us to get back into a window and be able to teach effectively. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also being really gentle with yourself. If you have to start class a little bit later, so you could take 10 minutes to do your own meditation or to move through a couple of grounding exercises or anything that support you in feeling more grounded or moving closer to your window, whatever that looks like for you, it's being mindful that that's part of the work. Absolutely. I'm wondering if we could talk a bit because it's um, both of our focus in different ways, but really around the politics of of what we're talking here around both trauma, uh, trauma informed yoga and practice. And there's two different things I want to ask you about here. And one is the fact that you and I met really as the Me Too movement was I I feel like just taking shape. Um, and mm-hmm. when I first uh, met you down at UCLA, where you were part of your work is. And I remember doing, um, a training you had me down. Do you remember what it was? Was it for care? The group that's there? Yeah. Yeah. It was, Can you? what's it called again? It was campus assault resources and education office, right. sort of the sexual right. assault response office on the campus. Right. And the, you know, I remember it being a time where there had been just, there was a lot up on campus and in many campuses around sexual assault and to be there with a group of people who were doing, such powerful, grounded, frontline work around sexual assault. It, and then here comes Me Too in this, in this moment. So I feel like ever since I've met you, Me Too has been here. We just had the the Weinstein trial or the first, in, at least on the East Coast. And so um, I'm wondering if you could just talk about what it's like to be doing work, trauma-informed yoga work, particularly around sexual violence in the time of, of Me Too. Oh my gosh, there is so much to say here. Um, There's a lot of energy and a lot of momentum. I mean, Tarana Burke started this movement, Me Too, really to provide survivors with this grounded reminder that they are never alone in their experience. 
especially for the experience of young Black women whose stories have been silenced in the national dialogue for far too long. Mm-hmm. And her work has been so profound. And, you know, I, I have found actually that Me Too, the Me Too movement and the trauma-informed yoga movement have sort of paralleled each other for some time now. And now more than ever, there's been this powerful convergence of the two because we have to be mindful of the stories that are living inside the bodies of so many survivors who are not able to about what's happened to them because of their own safety or because they hold certain marginalized identities. And there are so many survivors who are trying to access support to help them manage the physiological impact of their trauma, the painful triggers that are arising in their bodies every single day. And it makes me really excited to, to be able to be writing this book right now at this at this moment in our world where, you know, especially the Harvey Weinstein trial and Chanel Miller just came out with a really powerful memoir on her experience with surviving the rape of Brock Turner. And there Mm -hmm. is just so much happening in our world around this movement and around these stories. And there are also just so many survivors who hold their stories and their bodies for their entire lives. And they are worthy of getting access to support to help them move, to move through, to access their innate capacity for resilience. And that's where I really feel like my work is, is coming in and, and it's exciting. And I feel, um, I feel just so grateful. I feel like it's an incredible honor to be doing this work at this moment in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed that that anything changed um, inside of your work and your classes? Do you feel like Me Too has shaped people to be able to share their stories differently? Or I'm just curious what you've what you've noticed. Yeah, I mean, I would say what is so interesting is you know within these these trauma informed yoga classes, it's typically within an eight week series format. And we make it really clear that it's not a support group or it's not clinical in any sort of capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, But oftentimes what happens is a survivor will, you know, I see, I see sort of the trajectory of their healing as it unfolds over our eight weeks together. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes on week one, you know, we'll spend some time talking about safety and community agreements and I'll be, you know, if one, one person might share or one person might say one word and it's, and it's, it's understandable. They're coming into a very new space. They don't know these other survivors in the room. It can feel incredibly vulnerable for those who have never shared that they're a survivor, that now they're in this sort of trauma-informed yoga class where um, Mm -hmm. they're feeling outed about their experience. I mean, there's so many emotions. The spectrum of emotions are really just flowing on that first, first day together. But then week after week, you really see sort of those emotional layers kind of unfolding and survivors connecting with each other in community, um, starting to share more about their own lived experiences or maybe um, some experiences that are related to their trauma. Um, And it's just amazing to see folks step into their own strength on their own terms to see what the safety of the practice and how that helps them really 
um, feel stable in their nervous system to then start mm. trusting and opening up with the way that they start sharing. Um, and I have just, you know, I've facilitated this series so many times. I mean, I started teaching it in 2011 and mm-hmm. it never gets any less amazing to be witness to that sort of courage and resilience. I bet. I have, um, I have a second part to that this political <laughs> question inside. I know we can go deep there. And then that, that just reminds me of, I hadn't thought of this before, but I was in South Africa last year uh, and I met someone named Pumla Gaboto Madikizela who had done as a fantastic leader and researcher in South Africa who is at Stellenbach University on in near Cape Town and had done this research during apartheid. Pumla was actually on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission panel, like one of the leaders who was going around the country. And in part of her research, she found that the communities that came together during apartheid after a traumatic event, it could have been a political assassination or some act of violence, and communities that came together in some form of movement with each other statistically had less intercommunity violence than communities that, that were more isolated and that weren't coming together into movement. And it makes me think of, of these classes that you're offering and the series that you're offering, like what it means to come and do this, uh, an arc with a number of people to build trust over time with a teacher like you. And it sounds like at some point, you know, after a 30 minutes of, of maybe conversation or study, it sounds like then you're putting yourselves into practice and I imagine moving together. And so I never thought about that. I just want to see if that, if you see parallels there of really what it means to be in collective movement practice together and not just verbal conversation. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that's the power of energy and community. I mean, when survivors of trauma can move together, when they can breathe together, when there is this sort of collective resilience that's building in the room and this shared experience of, I can understand, I can understand and I can relate to your experience and none of us are alone in this, mm-hmm. you know, to, I mean, I can think about all the times where I've been in community settings, whether that be, you know, after I've gone through a really incredible training or after a teacher or after a retreat, and then I try to find the words to express what I'm feeling. Um, you know, you're sort of like, I don't know, I'm exhausted and I'm fatigued, but I'm grateful to, mm-hmm. to be able to instead use our bodies or to use other holistic means of being able to kind of move that trauma residue through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, there, there, it's, um, it's a practice that transcends words, you know, anybody yes. who's been in spaces like that can certainly, you know, talk about sort of the physiological impact of what that looks like or what that feels like, but it's truly an embodied experience. And there are moments too, where I'm leading a class or I might offer a couple invitations or some moments of silence or, or for folks to explore what rest looks like on their terms. And, you know, I'll take a moment to just notice my hand on my heart and my belly and um, to kind of take in the collective breath that is surrounding me and 
And I feel it in those moments. You know, I feel the power of like, wow, there is some serious Mm. work and there is some serious healing that's happening in this room right now. And I wish I could just, you know, capture it and be able to explain it, but that would take the magic away. You know, magic is really in that felt sense. Yeah, that's beautiful. That brings me to, um, I guess, probably the second um, political piece that I wanted to talk to you about when I imagine it's powerful the way you talked about that wordless um, experience and the powerful experience of having a group of people together doing movement embodiment practice. And then I know that there's also ways that yoga can be potentially fraught from a couple of different angles. One being, in my experience, um, not a lot of analysis around that there are different bodies that can do different things. Yeah. Uh, and some people might call that ableism, but that, that there's sometimes an assumption inside of yoga classes, at least that I've been in, where it's like, wow, I can't do that. And then that sense of shame and isolation that I think you and I are so committed that people don't experience. So there's the ableism piece. And then there's just this complex piece around yoga and how to talk about the cultural roots of yoga, how at times it can be commodified. When is it cultural appropriation? When is it cultural sharing? I'm in some ways agnostic on certain pieces here as I, as I learn more. And it just feels like a complex tangle that's important when we're talking about trauma to really be talking about. So would you be able to talk to, I know this is a huge question, but either of those around how do we work with ableism then how do we work with uh, cultural aspects of yoga in a, in a skillful way? Oh, absolutely. Gosh. Well, this is, this is a definitely a training in and of itself. Yeah, right. I want right. to say on this as a South Asian woman um, doing work around yoga and trauma, you know, yoga is a practice that emerged from India as a means to transcend people's suffering. And I feel like that has, in all the ways that yoga has become westernized or commodified, it's um, people have forgot about the roots of the practice. And that's evident in, in all of the yoga as fitness classes and all of the ways, that, you know, the push harder or sit deeper language. I mm. think so much about, you know, what, it, what has happened to the softness of our practice or the root as a means to transcend people's suffering, you know, and, and it makes me also think about vinyasa as a Sanskrit word for to place in a special way. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. To place in a special way. And I, I love that, that Sanskrit translation because it, it brings me back to the, to the work that I do from a trauma informed lens, you know, that we're empowering survivors to make choices that feel best for their bodies, but we're not erasing the cultural roots of the practice. You know, I still very much use Sanskrit in my classes and I explain where these various cultural um, traditions come from, or I talk about Patanjali and the eight limbs in my classes and how that might relate to an emotional experience of yoga. So I sometimes think that when folks are trying to talk about making the practice more accessible, whether that be through a trauma-informed lens or through other means, I think that that means that they have to strip down the the essence of the practice. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know what I think? That mm-hmm. there are certainly ways to increase accessibility while also honoring where the practice comes from. 
and oh sorry go ahead were you gonna say something oh no i'm just cute that's 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 a tension point i think in a lot of different domains about how to both like where is it innovation or where is it actually um, not staying true and keeping some guardrails in place about the purpose of the first place around the practice so i'm just i just get curious there about how how you navigate that oh absolutely i mean you know we we have to acknowledge that survivors of sexual assault or survivors of trauma in general have multiple identities and those identities not only inform and shape and influence their experiences of sexual violence or other types of trauma whether that be trauma from discrimination or systems-based trauma uh, microaggressions um, but they also have to be held and deeply understood in order for us to truly create culturally affirming healing spaces. Um, and Dee, you and I have talked about this a lot, you know, sort of the concept of embodied inequality and race-based trauma and the way that that can manifest as physiological symptoms similar to PTSD. Um, mm. So when folks of color are experiencing discrimination or oppression or bias or experiencing the day-to-day impact of microaggressions, that that is sort of showing up in their body oftentimes as trauma symptoms. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Gail Parker, who is an amazing, she's a force and she also has a book coming out. The title of her book is Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Stress and Trauma. And something that she talks a lot about in the scope of her work is how oftentimes yoga is a practice that helps people of color to experience safety in their vulnerability. And this is a really new learning for folks who might have that ongoing or cumulative experience of racial stress. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and she talks a lot about how folks of color really need this experience of being able to experience safety in their vulnerability to, to know what the absence of stress feels like in their body. Yeah, that's And, great. you know, you think about how often trauma survivors and then you add the layer of being a person of color live in states of hyper arousal or chronic stress and threat because they're moving through the world not necessarily knowing the difference between safety and danger. And yeah. so there's so much to your question, David, just around, you know, the roots of the practice and also honoring the various um, experiences, the diverse survivors that we're working with and and supporting them in a really culturally affirming and healing way. And I mean, yeah. it's hard to not, you know, it's, I wish that there could be a and a quick answer or easy answer or a checklist. I mean, there's certainly things that we can do um, around helping folks feel seen in our spaces, whether that's through the signage that we're providing and creating an inclusive environment or having gender neutral bathrooms in the spaces where we're teaching um, or being really cognizant of explaining Sanskrit and integrating that into the scope of these classes that we're teaching, reading quotes from people of color, color or using gender neutral language. You know, there's so much that we can do in helping folks feel seen, but also this lifelong process of 
of sort of like reflexive attentiveness is the term that Dr. Wendy Ashley uses of being able to have cultural humility around leaning into the messiness of some of these conversations, you know, of acknowledging that we're not always going to get it right and we're going to mess up or we're going to say the wrong thing. But the lifelong work of being an ally is, is committing to showing up to ensuring that people do not feel invisible in your classes because of your own discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this. I mean, ever since we've met, I think we've been having this conversation in one way or another and thinking a lot about safety the last couple months. And, uh, in particular, the dynamic that you just named, uh, when a teacher or a person in a position of power can say something that lands as hurtful to someone, and then, but then this tricky place where is there enough safety and trust built up in the system or the relationship to move through that? Or is it like you, you said something that made me feel unsafe, therefore I'm unsafe. And this tricky place of how to find um, room inside of a system, how to create the space for there to be mistakes yeah. made. Oh, there's so much there. <laughs> I mean, I just am feeling that big time, just the... Um, you know, the work of, of being an ally and how complex it can be of if you say one thing and, and does that immediately damage the relationship or the ability to move through or continue to lean in to work towards more embodied experiences of safety together? Yeah, and how, yeah. yeah, how does that look or how do we continue to repair? I mean, I do believe that repair is right. possible, but... And that we can't guarantee, or at least people that are teaching can't necessarily guarantee a, a quote unquote safe space. And I don't mean this as a criticism of safe spaces. I'm someone who's, I think both of us are doing work around creating as, as safe as a verb almost, like heading in the direction of as safe a space as possible. Um, and yet there's going to be room and places that people will be feeling missed or not assuming that we can, again, it gets back to that quote that you said earlier, are we carrying or caring yeah. and how much responsibility, right size responsibility, I think to take on in leadership and the possibility to me that survivors can self-generate their own safety internally, that it, if it's only dependent on the external making someone feel safe, yes, we need to totally acknowledge unsafe conditions and do our best, but if it's only dependent on external, I think that's fundamentally disempowering yeah. for survivors if they feel, I'll just tell one quick story. I had a, a good friend who was actually looking for a yoga class that was going to help them feel safe. Mm. And it was really focused. I mean, they, they talk about it a lot about identity and saying that if I, they were feeling like if I could just find the, uh, a yoga community of folks who mostly had shared my experience then I think I'd feel safe. And so I went through this process of finding, finally finding a trauma sensitive yoga community with, in this case, it with South Asian people that had experienced um, a form of sexual violence. And it was, you know, it's a small group and they reported having the experience on the other side of it saying, oh my gosh, I was halfway through the class and realized this didn't answer the questions around safety mm. that I was, I was expecting that I would just finally, when I found it, I could feel safe. And instead I'm realizing, yes, that's a part of it, but then I also need tools yeah. to be able to work my own safety and which gets back earlier, you talking about boundaries, safety, inner strength, 
that people can cultivate that in their own practice. Oh, absolutely. It's very, it's harmful and dangerous for us as practitioners to assume that we are going to be this embodiment of safety, you know, or that we're going to immediately help people feel safe because we're offering this trauma-informed class. I mean, we don't, that's not up to us, you know, that's up to the survivor to to decide what lands for them. And then it also takes an incredible, that's where the ego comes in of acknowledging that you might not be the best person to support that survivor. And I know that can feel really hard for practitioners who are working so hard to, you know, refine their training or to commit to the inner work or to utilize the tools or to share the tools in a way that feels supportive and meaningful and accessible and to still make space for the fact that you might not be the person that can hold space for that survivor in that particular way and that that's okay. That's such a good call. I take that. I mean, I have to work at that of (laughs) taking how to not take it personally. I hear you talking. If someone, I could try my absolute best with the best of intentions and all the safety and, and still have someone say, I feel unsafe. Yeah. And to, yeah, to really, what's the practice of not, as you're saying, to, to not personalize that, let someone be in choice and not, I mean, I've had people talk about this too, around the feeling of being a savior, like, let me come in and create the safe environment, realizing, uh oh, I can't, I can just do the best I can do. And and then keep staying in conversation about, well, what will have this whole group feel safe? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you talked about it. Um, maybe this would be a place to start landing the conversation here, but you mentioned uh, that you're writing a book and um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about what, even what projects are you doing these days? Where are you focusing your attention? What's, what's this book project and and what's the next uh, few, few months look like for you? Sure. <laughs> it's very full, <laughs> yeah, full yeah. and exciting. And I, I just, again, I never imagined in a million years that I would be here, um, especially as a woman of color and, you know, all the ways that trauma has made it really easy for me to shrink myself or to feel small or to feel imposter syndrome taking over, um, to have, you know, a, a huge publisher like Norton say, we believe in you. We believe in your voice. We believe that this book deserves to be out in the world and that you're the one to write it. I mean, They've said some of those exact words and some of their emails and, and to really, for me, it's a practice to take that in and, um, to believe that, you know, not one part of this journey has been easy. There's been a lot of tears and a lot of breakdowns and, um, a lot that has happened in getting me to this moment in my career. And, um, yeah, I, the book is, is taking all of my, my mind, body, soul, and spirit right now. I bet. I bet. Do you, do you have a title for it? Do you have a tentative title that you're working the, with? The tentative or? title is Trauma-Informed Yoga for Survivors of Sexual Assault. Um, I think it might, you know, sort of intersect with the, a supportive guide for practitioners because I think hmm. that not only do I hope for it to be a really soft place for survivors to land, to kind of learn more about their own experience and to engage with their healing around trauma-informed yoga in a way that feels right for them, but also to provide 
whether it's mental health professionals or yoga teachers or medical professionals or social justice educators, anyone who kind of wants to learn more about how to integrate these tools into the scope of their particular profession and really trying to write it in a way that feels accessible and kind of nuanced and can be tailored in many different capacities. So yeah, that, that is my big project right now. I'm also, um, working with three new universities. So we're gearing up for a few more program implementations of implementing this eight-week series. And I have an in-person training coming up in New York City, um, as well as my ongoing online trainings and an affirmation deck that's also coming out with my dear colleague, Eve Andre, who's doing all of the illustrations for it. So there's just so much. And I just, um, I just feel grateful to share it with the world and just grateful to everybody for listening in. Mm-hmm. So you're saying you have a really spacious next three to six months. It sounds like it should. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How can people get a hold of you if they're um, trying to find you? Absolutely. So the best way is through my website at zabiyamasaki.com um, or on Instagram at transcending trauma with yoga. Excellent. Anything else that you'd want us to know about you or, or your work before we sign off? I, I'm excited to engage with folks. Please feel free to reach out to me if you want to learn more about any of the trainings or if I can support you in the scope of your work and in bringing the, the gift of trauma-informed yoga to survivors. Um, and just This was such an amazing conversation, David. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Zabi. It's great to talk to you. And I'm just really excited to see where the work goes and the different, you know, folks and people that you're training and teaching. To me, it's it's part of a larger community and movement that's really learning each day and week and month as you go. So I'm just really excited to see where it all heads and also for the book. Really excited that that's going to be out sooner than later. So thanks again for being here. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Zabi for taking the time to come on the podcast. And if you have any suggestions of topics that you'd like us to cover or people that you want us to talk to, please let us know at support at davidtrelevin.com. Finally, just a note of sending care to all of you uh, during this time around the coronavirus. It's uh, As I'm recording this, it's really just starting to ramp up here on the west coast of the U.S. and um, I'm not sure when by the time this comes out where things will be at but I'm sending care to all of you and looking forward to being in conversation about trauma-sensitive practice. Take care. (music) 